In our second episode, we talked about Pentecost. The church was born, and from nothing to suddenly thousands, the church exploded into existence. Something like this can only happen in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brought the church to life. The same power that brought the church to life brought the church back to life in a revival so great it is called by historians the Great Awakening. Welcome back to Church History. I'm your host, Laura Lee Siemens. I told you last week I would keep you updated on how the first book in our series is going. Well, I'm done writing it, and I'm working on some bonus material, and I'm getting closer to finishing, and I'll keep you updated. So, this episode is coming out two days late. Why? Well, for a few reasons. One, I've been very blessed with a growing business of podcast editing. This week, I had nine podcasts that I've edited, and it's only halfway through Wednesday. Also, as a side note, if you're thinking about starting a podcast and you're looking for help, feel free to message me. The other reason is that I started looking into the life of Jonathan Edwards, and things got complicated. What do we all know about Edwards? He was the greatest theologian of all time. His children went on to help shape America. He preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, and revival spread under his teaching. Great. Podcast over. But then we find out all this extra stuff, and well, it gets complicated. So, to make sure that I was giving an accurate portrayal, I had to do a lot more research. And it was hard. He's a hero of church history, and I don't want to say anything bad about him. But at the same time, there are some bad things. But in the historical context, can these things be seen differently? But sin is sin, regardless of if that sin was acceptable by society or not. So... This is my best attempt to give a true, accurate portrayal of someone I still believe was one of the greatest preachers of our time, while still showing his struggles. The Great Awakening started around 1720, and the world was changing. Secular rationalism was becoming fashionable, and the old ideas of the Puritans were, well, out of fashion. Philosophy, realism, and deism, that was the future. These ideas would be known by historians as the Enlightenment. People did have reason to walk away from the church. We talked about the Salem witch trials in last week's episode. It was situations like this that made people begin to lose trust in the church. There was also small penny books being sold, and many of them were pornographic in nature. These books became very popular among young people. They were traded amongst each other, and the youth were in moral decline. The relationship between the Puritans and the natives had broken down. The Puritans had been adamant about the natives being treated fairly. The land was purchased and treaties were made. Puritans had made it a mission to spread God's love to the native people. They had learned their languages. They had brought them medicine. They had created trading companies. They had wrote the Bible in their languages. They had fought against government officials who were treating the natives unfairly. But as people walked away from the principles of the Puritans, 
they also walked away from the treatments and the treaties they had signed with the natives. More land was taken without payment, and natives were pushed off their land. The slave trade had also grown. As the people walked away from the teachings of the Puritans, the slave trade grew. Exploded would really be a better way of looking at it. The town, where Edwards would eventually do most of his pastoring, went from having a few dozen slaves to having thousands in just a few decades. This was happening in Europe and in the Americas. There was a spiritual famine, but God raised up men during this time period. We talked about the Wesley brothers, who were a big part of the Great Awakening. In next week's episode, we're going to talk about a man named George Whitefield. Today, we're talking about Jonathan Edwards. In October of 1703, in a small town in Connecticut, a native tribe attacks. People are killed, some are taken captive, and in one of the homes, the town pastor, Timothy Edwards, and his wife, Esther, are hiding. Esther is in labor. The couple's five little girls are also in their home. And that night, they give birth to a little boy named Jonathan. Jonathan was a very bright boy, and very early on, he loved to learn. He learned everything he could. His father, Timothy, saw how smart he was. Jonathan would be the couple's only son. They had 11 children in total, 10 girls and one boy. Large families were common during this time period, but what was not common was large families surviving. It was far more usual for families to lose children to disease or accidents. As the family grew, Timothy struggled to support his family. He took extra work tutoring boys for university. Elizabeth was a very intelligent woman. She had been raised by a pastor. We're going to look more into her father a little bit later in this episode. Timothy, in trying to help his wife manage the home while he was away, bought a slave. A black man named Answers came to live in Edward's home. He helped manage the house, and Timothy rented him out to other men from the church for extra money. It's important when we study church history that we don't shy away from the hard parts of the story of the people we are studying. And when studying the life of Jonathan Edwards, there are some parts that are especially difficult to understand. But please, listen all the way to the end, because we're going to see that God was working in the hearts of people, and God was using people, even people who were doing things that were wrong. And that is the story of the Edwards family. Jonathan was exceptionally smart. He read everything that Isaac Newton wrote. He also read the essays of John Locke. He read all of this when he was a child. He was fascinated with studying nature and documented everything he could. At age 11, he wrote a scientific paper on spiders, and it was published in England journals. Jonathan was on the journey to becoming a great scientist. At age 12, Jonathan went to Yale University. While attending university as a teenager was normal for this time period, the age most people went to university was 16 or 17, so going to university at age 12 was still exceptional. Jonathan kept four journals. They were labeled The Mind, Natural Science, The Scriptures, and Miscellaneous. One day, Jonathan was reading the Bible when he read the passage, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Now, to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This passage stopped Jonathan in his tracks. The greatness of God suddenly became real. He fell down before God. 
he suddenly realized just how great God was and how small and insignificant he was. For the first time, he didn't see himself as the genius prodigy that he'd been told his whole life that he was. He saw himself as a sinner, small and insignificant. But the wonder of it all was God, this great God, coming to this earth to save us and rescue us. This thought overwhelmed him. From that moment on, Jonathan studied the Bible, and although he studied the natural sciences, it became more of a side study. Theology became his main study. Jonathan would wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and he would not go back to bed until 10 o'clock at night. He made it a life goal that he would study at least 13 hours a day, and he would keep this goal for the rest of his life. Many of his classmates, who were also studying natural sciences, were starting to believe in deism, the idea that God created the world and then walked away and left nature to do its thing. But Jonathan instead saw nature as a way of seeing who God is. He thought learning about nature was how he could learn more about God. At age 19, Jonathan was given the job of being a supply pastor in New York City. After a year, the church asked Jonathan to stay and be their pastor, but he declined. He went home for a few months, and then he was asked by Yale to come help and lead the school. The school rector, Timothy Cutler, had become an Anglican and had thus been fired. At age 25, he left the school and took a job with his grandfather helping him with his church. His grandfather's name was Solomon Stoddard. Solomon Stoddard had pastored the church for almost 60 years, and he was one of the most famous preachers of his time. Solomon saw the great aptitude of Jonathan Edwards. He also saw that Jonathan was very much an introvert and didn't have the social skills or social abilities that other men his age had. So the job he gave Jonathan was a studying position. He was not to be a visiting preacher. During his time at Yale, Jonathan had gotten to know a young girl named Sarah. Sarah was the daughter of James Perpont, the founder of Yale. Jonathan met Sarah when she was just 13. Sarah loved to walk through the forest and sing songs of praises to God. Jonathan thought Sarah was an exceptional girl. He became friends with her, and when she was 17, he asked her to marry him. She agreed. Sarah and Jonathan were two very smart, gifted people who both wanted nothing more than to honor God and preach the gospel. Jonathan respected his grandfather. However, there were some things they disagreed on. One of them was child baptism, and the other was communion. People had their children baptized, and their children automatically became members of the church. During the time when people were walking away from the church, they still felt the need to be members of the church. Remember, it was not atheism that was spreading, but deism. They still believed in God, they still believed in heaven, and they still believed in hell. But believing in God, Jesus, heaven, hell... That doesn't make you a Christian. Neither does belonging to a church. But people didn't want to confess their sins or give up their sins. They didn't want to change their lives. They did want to escape hell. And belonging to the church and take communion? Well, that was important to them. Because in their minds, it helped them escape hell. So, when a baby was baptized and then grew up having little or nothing to do with the church until they also had a baby, and then they wanted their baby to be baptized, what were they to do with that? What if they also wanted to take communion? 
Solomon's standard believed for the sake of the unity of the town and unity in the church, that those who were only members of the church by baptism could still take communion, as long as their grandparents were or had been members in good standing with the church. This became known as halfway covenant. We can see from this practice how far the church had fallen from when the Puritans had first arrived in the Americas. On February 11, 1729, Pastor Solomon died, leaving his grandson Jonathan Edwards in charge of the church. One year later, in 1730, their first child was born, Jerusha, a little girl. In 1731, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon against Arminianism. He was a very strict Calvinist, and his message was printed and spread around. The fight between Arminians and Calvinists became very strong during the Great Awakening. In our next episode, when I tell you the life of George Whitfield, we'll look into this great divide in greater detail. We have to understand Jonathan Edwards' view on Calvinism to understand his life. He believed the exact opposite of deism. While deism believed God created the world and then walked away and allowed humans and nature to do what it did, Jonathan Edwards believed that God was holding everything together and was directing all things. He believed that God was in control of the hierarchy of power, and God is the one who placed you into the position of power that you had. He believed God created man in different stations of life. This means he believed the person born into poverty was put into poverty by God. The person born into royalty was placed on the throne by God. He believed that we must therefore live in submission based on the place God gave us, and serve God in the place he put us. So, Jonathan believed as a colonist, he must submit to the throne and whoever God placed on the throne. And he also believed the person born into slavery was placed there by God for God's purpose and must submit to the slave owner. The king had the responsibility to care for and protect those God placed under his care. In the same way, the slave owner had the responsibility to care for and protect the slave under his care. Clearly, This is not what Calvinists of today believe, at least I hope they don't. Before you decide that Jonathan Edwards now falls in the category of bad guy in history, let me ask you to please listen all the way to the end. There are a few things we have to remember. One, remember the time period when Jonathan lived. Remember, he grew up with a slave in his home. Jonathan respected his father, who he loved very much. Jonathan's father taught him the fundamentals of Christianity and was his example. We also have to remember that slavery was not a new thing. When Jonathan Edwards lived, there had never been a time in history when slavery did not exist. It was practiced in every country in the world and by every group and nationality of people. While the idea of anti-slavery was spreading and growing, this was a new idea. We will see at the end of this episode that there is some reason to believe that Jonathan Edwards wrestled with this idea. Another thing to remember is that Edwards was a sinner. This is something we must always remember when studying history. We must never put any man on the pedestal that only Jesus belongs on. Only Jesus was sinless. Each and every hero of our faith was a sinner and did and taught things that were wrong. This is why only the Bible is our foundation. While reading books by theologians from all time periods will teach us great things, only the Bible can be trusted as truth. 
Jonathan Edwards was a sinner, and what he did in 1731 was a sin. In 1731, the same year as his famous Calvinist sermon, Jonathan Edwards bought a young slave girl named Venus. She had been brought from Africa to the Americas and was purchased by the Edwards family. Later, we don't know the year, the Edwards family also purchased a slave boy named Titus. There are some historians that say there may have been a third slave named Leah, but most believe the Edwards family changed the name of Venus to a Christian name, Leah. While we look back at this in shock, I know, I was shocked to learn this fact, as Jonathan Edwards has always been in the hero category of church history to me. I do believe that Jonathan Edwards wrestled with this idea of slavery. One of the things Edwards did was open his church membership to slaves. Slaves in the area were welcomed to come to church, be baptized, take communion alongside the rest of the congregation. Edwards did believe in the family of God all people were equal. He also preached that it was the responsibility of the slave owner to teach their slaves about God and to preach the gospel to them. Edwards also taught the monogenetic view of people. This was the view that there was only one race, and every human came from Adam and Eve. Therefore, all people were sinners, and all people were in need of a Savior, and Jesus' blood could save all people because we are all one race. While you would think this is obvious, there was another view being preached in some churches, and this other view was being embraced. This view was the ethogenous view. This view taught that there was an earlier race before Adam and Eve, that it was an inferior race and belonged in more of the category of animal. The native people and the Africans were descendants of this earlier race. This theology taught that Jesus came to save the race of Adam and Eve and not this inferior race. Now, definitely, we can judge this bad theology. But let me give you a little more knowledge. In a later episode, we're going to talk about the life of a man who had a huge, in my opinion, negative impact on the church. And this man held this viewpoint. His name was Darwin. And yes, this belief was the foundation of his belief, Darwinism, or evolution. So today, churches that try to merge Christianity and Darwinism would probably have been the same type of churches that would have been following this false teaching We're going to talk more about slavery throughout this episode. Now, during this time, Edwards continued his 13 hours a day of studying. He continued to wake up at 5 in the morning and did not go back to bed until 10 at night. He would break for meals that he had with his family and family devotional time. And in the middle of the day, he would have one hour to exercise. He also had time put aside each day to pray with his wife. His day was scheduled and he even made notes of each food he ate, and he would write down how he felt after each meal. If he saw a pattern of how a type of food affected him, he would then avoid it or eat it more, depending on if it was a negative or positive effect on him. In 1732, their second child, Esther, was born. We're going to learn more about Esther later in this episode. Her son is very significant in history. In 1733, a revival spread through the town. In six months, over 300 youth were saved and added to the church. Edwards, remember, was a Calvinist, and he preached this very strongly. 
While revival spread and grew over the next few years, something else tragic happened. There were people who would pray for salvation, but would not feel as though they had been saved. Because the Calvinist teaching can be understood to believe that God picks who goes to heaven and who does not, some people began to believe that they had been rejected by God and that they were not part of the elect. Therefore, they were doomed and there was no way to God. In 1734, the third child was born, Mary, and two years later, Lucy was born. And two years after that, their first son, Timothy, was born. But then, in 1739, six years after the revival, tragedy struck the town, and Edwards was blamed. At this point, he's a parent of five young children, all under the age of ten. He's still studying 13 hours a day and preaching his strong Calvinist messages. Then, in one year, there was a wave of suicides. Many people in the town killed themselves because they believed there was no hope for them because they didn't believe they were part of the elect. This included Jonathan Edwards' own uncle. This year of suicides impacted Jonathan's ministry, and it was the beginning of the decline of his relationship with the elders in their church. During this really difficult year, George Whitfield came to see Edwards and stayed in the area to support him and help him. Jonathan Edward left for a little while to travel and preach, and Jonathan Whitfield stayed behind to preach in his pulpit. During this time, another great revival came over the church, and Sarah would write to Jonathan about the great work God was doing through Whitfield's preaching. Next week, we're going to learn a lot more about George Whitfield. In 1740, the Edwards had another little girl named Susanna. One year later, on July 8, 1741, Edwards preached the most famous sermon in history, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. He preached it first at Northampton in his church where he was pastored, but really it had no impact. It was just one more sermon. But then he was asked to preach in Enfield, Connecticut as a last-minute request. The pastor needed someone to preach, and so he pulled out a sermon he had preached before and headed to the town to preach. This church was in a huge decline, and when he got there and began preaching, people were talking during the preaching. No one was listening and no one cared. They were extremely disrespectful and disruptive. The congregation thought they were too good and too important for a preacher like Jonathan Edwards. He was into this revival stuff, and they didn't want to hear about it. They didn't want to hear anything about changing the way they lived. They just wanted a short, basic sermon so they could go home and say they'd been to church. One of the lines from his sermon, Jonathan cried out, Return to the heart of God. Suddenly, people became quiet and they began to listen. Here are some of the points from his sermon. God has the power to send wicked men to hell at any moment. We deserve to be cast into hell. The forces of hell are reigning in the hearts of the wicked. Just because death doesn't seem close, doesn't mean hell is not right around the corner. Men cannot make themselves safe from God's wrath. I'm going to read a larger portion of the sermon to you right now. O sinner, consider the fearful danger that you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit 
full of the fire, if the wrath that you are held over in the hand of God, whose wrath is provoked, an incest as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to signal it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Consider here more partially whose wrath it is. It is the wrath of the infinite God. If it were only the wrath of man, though it were the most potent prince, it would be comparatively little to regard. The wrath of kings is very much dreaded, especially of absolute monarchs, who have the possessions and lives of their subjects wholly in their power, to be disposed of at their mere will. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 2 says, The fear of a king is the roaring of a lion, Whoso provoketh him to anger sinneth against his own soul. The subject, who very much enrages an arbitrary prince, is liable to suffer the most extreme torments that human art can invent or human power can inflict. But the greatest earthly potence, in their greatest majesty and strength, when clothed in their greatest terrors, are but feeble despicable worms of the dust in comparison with the great and almighty creator and king of heaven and earth. It is but little that they can do when most enraged and when they have exerted the utmost of their fury. All the kings of the earth before God are as grasshoppers. They are nothing and less than nothing, both their love and their hatred are to be despised. The wrath of the great king of kings is as much more terrible than theirs as his majesty is greater. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him, which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Luke chapter 12, verse 4 and 5. Suddenly, people began to shout out, What shall I do to be saved? Some were shouting, Stop, stop, I can't bear this. People grabbed pillars, crying out for God to save them. Then Jonathan continued. He preached the grace and mercy of God. Here's another paragraph. Do you not see how generally persons of your years are passed over and left in the dispensations of God's mercy? You had need to consider yourselves and wake thoroughly out of sleep. You cannot bear the fierceness and wrath of the infinite God. And you, young man and young woman, will you neglect this precious season which you now enjoy? When so many others of your age are renouncing all youthful vanities and flocking to Christ, you especially have now an opportunity. But if you neglect it, it will soon be with you as it was with those persons who spent all the precious days of youth in sin. 
and are now come to such a dreadful pass in blindness and hardness. And you children who are unconverted, do you not know that you are going down to hell to bear the dreadful wrath of that God who is now angry with you every day and every night? Will you be content to be the children of the devil when so many of the children of the land are converted and are becoming the holy and happy children of the King of Kings? And let every one that is yet out of Christ and hanging over the pit of hell, whether they be old men and women, or middle-aged, or young people, or little children, now hearken to the loud calls of God's word and providence. This acceptable year of the Lord, a day of great mercy to come, will doubtless be a day of as remarkable vengeance to others. Men's hearts hardened, and their guilt increased as much as this day if they neglect their souls. Never was there a period when so many means were employed for the salvation of souls. And if you entirely neglect them, you will eventually curse the day of your birth. Now, undoubtedly it is, as it was the days of John the Baptist, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. And every tree which brings not forth good fruit may be hewn down and cast into the fire. Therefore, let every one that is out of Christ now awake and flee from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over every unregenerated sinner. Let everyone flee out of Sodom. Escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. People flooded forward, crying in repentance. Even today, this one message is probably the most famous message in history, and it's known as the message of the Great Awakening. And I will have a link to the full message for you to read in the show notes. That same year, in 1741, the year he preached that message, we see a huge change in Jonathan Edwards as well. This was the year his view on slavery changed. Venus had been with them for 10 years at this point, and perhaps it was that Jonathan saw her humanity that changed his view. Perhaps it was his hours of studying scripture that changed him. Perhaps it was that God changed his heart as well during the Great Awakening. But during this year, Jonathan wrote an essay on slavery. There are two other things that happened that year that probably changed his view on slavery. One, a nearby church fired its preacher because the preacher had a slave. The congregation was turning away from slavery, and they saw the ownership of slavery as a sin. The essay Edwards wrote was in response to this particular firing, as Edwards also at this time most likely owned two slaves. I say two because we don't know at what point he bought Titus, but it is extremely doubtful he would have bought a slave after 1741, based on his change of viewpoints on the subject. The second thing that changed his view was a slave revolt in New York City. In New York City, it was believed that there was a plan to burn New York City down. The belief was that a group of people, blacks, both free and owned, and a group of white people who opposed slavery, planned on starting fires across New York City and burning the city down. 
in a revolt against the practice of slavery. A group of 13 black men were tried, found guilty, and burned at the stake. This is, I believe, the only burning at the stake that took place in the Americas. Last week we talked about the Salem witch trials, where many people believe witches were burned. However, as we learned, there was no burning of witches in America. Not long after the burning of these men, it was revealed that there was most likely no plan at all to burn the city. Most people were outraged by what happened, and it was after this that the anti-slavery movement began speaking out even louder, and some churches began firing their clergy if their clergy owned slaves. In Edward's essay, he makes these points. 1. Slaves must be treated with respect and with kindness. Any harm done to a slave is harm against a man or woman that God created and is a sin against God. 2. The only slavery allowed in the Bible was slavery to pay off debt or a war captive. 3. The transatlantic slave trade was sin and that it needed to be stopped immediately. His previous view had been that God was sending the Africans to them so they could tell the gospel and show them the way of salvation. He changed his view on this and said the transatlantic slave trade was not only sin, but it was a hindrance to the spread of the gospel. He wondered why any slave would ever want to hear the gospel from someone who had stolen them from their home. We don't know what Jonathan Edwards' relationship was with Venus, but reading this makes me wonder. Venus was taken from Africa, and it was Edwards who bought her. In the essay, Edwards also called the anti-slave movement hypocrites. He pointed out that they used products made by slaves, and their life was more comfortable because other people owned slaves. They didn't personally own slaves, but they were unwilling to sacrifice by refusing to use any product that had been made by slaves. He said the options were to either outlaw slavery completely and not allow anyone to use the products produced by slaves, or place regulations on the slave owner to make sure that slaves were treated fairly. But to judge slave owners while you profit from the fact that they owned slaves is hypocritical. He was calling out the person who was against slavery personally, but didn't want to make it illegal. Kind of like a movement we have today with abortion, where there are people who wouldn't personally have an abortion, but don't see the necessity to make it illegal in the whole country. We can see from this essay that Edward's views were changing. It's interesting to see that while God was using Edward's to change the hearts of so many people, God was also working to change Edward's heart. In 1743, the couple had their seventh child, Eunice. And one year later, in 1744, Edwards preached a message exposing the sins of the younger generation in the church. The problems were mostly laid at the feet of their parents. He preached about three things, bundling, night walking, and pornographic novels. What was bundling? Well, a young person would bring a date home. And before marriage could happen, the mother and father would put the teens in two separate sacks, put them in bed together, and then watch them carefully while they slept for the night. Is a very interesting thing that parents were doing during this time. And Jonathan Edwards preached strongly against it. The other thing was night walking. Night walking would be the next thing that would happen, 
routines would go out on a nice long walk alone at night, and it was assumed they would test each other out. The third thing was pornographic novels that were read and then passed around. In his sermon, he exposed these practices. He also named the families who were involved in these practices. People were extremely angry that these names had been read out, and it caused more divides among Edwards and his congregation. In 1745, the Edwards had their eighth child, Jonathan. Jonathan Edwards Jr. would become the one that would continue Edwards' ministry after his death. Two years later, the couple had their ninth child, Elizabeth. In 1748, Edwards decided to write a book about communion. He wanted to write why his grandfather was wrong in the idea of halfway covenant. You could not be halfway saved. You were either saved or not saved. And only those who were saved should take communion. The elders in his church told him he was not allowed to write this book. He had spoken fiercely about hell. He had preached that all people could be part of the church membership. He had written about slavery in a year when it was the most debated topic of the year. He had published the names of families who practiced bundlings, night walks, and read pornographic novels. And he spent 13 hours a day studying, leaving very little time for pastoral visits. So, was it writing the book that got him fired? Or was it the straw that broke the camel's back? Either way, in 1794, Edwards was fired from his church although he continued to preach until they found his replacement, and that took a few years. During this time, churches from all over the Americas and Europe were asking Edwards to come and take their pulpit, and during that time, the couple had their tenth child, Pierpont. In 1751, a preacher named John Sergit died, and Edwards felt God was telling him to take over this small, tiny church. And when he did that, he became a missionary to a group of native Indians. While God was working on changing Edward's heart to see the wrongs of slavery, he also used this time to change Edward's heart about the native people. Remember, Edward's was literally born at a time of great unrest between the natives and the colonists. He was born while his town was being attacked. Edward's wrote and taught that the native people were unintelligent. They had no culture and no religion at all. Their language was barely a language, and they were prone to crime. He really had no respect for them at all. But when he took over this very tiny church of John Surgit, he began to witness to the natives in the area. When he began his ministry to them, he did not witness to them because he loved them. He witnessed to them because he loved Jesus. But as Edwards began to get to know his new neighbors, his mind was changed. He realized that they had a very strong community and a very strong family structure. And they had an amazing culture. They definitely had a religion. And they were open to Christianity. And many turned to Christ and became members in his church. He also could see clearly that the crimes most of them were involved in were the result of alcohol and guns that had been given to them by the colonists. He also learned about the treaties the Puritans had first made with the tribes and that these treaties were not being held. Edwards being an extremely well-educated person, took the treaties and began to fight for the legal rights that the tribes had. And he helped the leaders in the tribes see and understand what their rights were. In just a few years, Edward's heart had done a complete 100 degrees with the native people. He loved them, and his whole family was greatly respected by the people there. 
1752, Edward's daughter Esther married a man named Aaron Burr Sr. Their son, Aaron Burr Jr., would be the third vice president of the United States under Thomas Jefferson. In 1755, Edward's son Jonathan Jr. moved and lived with an Algonquin tribe in order to learn their language. He was only 10 years old at the time. That is perhaps the youngest missionary in history. It's for sure the youngest missionary I am aware of. Jonathan Edwards Jr. became one of the greatest anti-slave voices in America, and he was also a voice for the rights of the Native people. Then, just five years after Esther's marriage, in 1757, Aaron Burr died. He was the president of a college called the College of New Jersey. Edwards was asked to take over the college. At first, he refused because he didn't think he was qualified, but eventually he agreed. Before the New Jersey College, there had been two colleges, Yale and Harvard. And now there was this new college, the College of New Jersey, which would be later called Princeton. In 1758, Edwards moved to the college and was waiting for his family to move with him. There was a fear of a possible outbreak of smallpox, and Edwards decided it would be wise for him to take the smallpox inoculation to keep himself safe. Within a few weeks of taking the smallpox inoculation, he had sores in his throat. Less than three months after receiving the smallpox inoculation, he was dead. He was 55 years old. His oldest child was 30 years old. His youngest child was 8 years old. During his life, his preaching caused great revivals. The world would not be the same as it was when he entered it. His published sermons went on and continue to change the world. Even today, they are read and studied. His daughter, Mary's son, Timothy Dwight, became the eighth president of Yale. And her grandson, Major Theodore Winston, was one of the men recorded as possibly being the first death in the Civil War. So Jonathan Edwards, who owned at least two slaves and who wrestled with the idea of slavery, had a great-grandson who would be one of the first to lay down his life to end slavery. His youngest, who was only eight when Edwards died, became a delegate to the Congress of the United States and a USA district judge. Jerus, who was the oldest child, became an aide to the missionary of David Brainard and was with him at his death. But it was Jonathan Edwards Jr. who did the most to continue his ministry after his father's death. He was only 16 years old when his father died. He graduated from Princeton in 1765 and became a preacher. He was one of the prominent voices in the abolition movement. In 1773, he wrote a book called Some Observations About the Slavery of Negroes, and in 1791, wrote The Injustice of the Slave Trade. He was good friends with and worked with a man named Samuel Hopkins, who we will talk about in a later episode. The two made it their life goal to end the practice of slavery. In 1801, he wrote The Plan of the Union. It was an evangelical plan to bring the gospel to the frontier. In 1787, he wrote a book about the native language, and it was a guide to help people understand the complexities of the native language. One of the things Jonathan Jr. did was start the New Light Calvinist, a Calvinist movement that didn't believe that slavery was ordained by God but was a sin orchestrated by Satan. This would of course be where Calvinists of today would believe. It's hard to listen to the life of Jonathan Edwards without being confused by his life. Such a passionate preacher, a gifted theologian, he clearly loved God and wanted to please him, and yet a slave owner, 
How can that be? Here are some personal thoughts I had while putting this episode together. There are blind spots in every generation. We can see problems with many great men who are part of church history. One man, and I don't remember who it was, said our responsibility as Christians is not to make much of a theologian, but to make much of Jesus. We read a theologian where he is useful, and where he is not, we put him down. Today we have blind spots also, and that is why we must have the Bible as our only absolute authority. Just a few weeks ago, I was talking to a friend about a problem I see in our Western churches. Her church was participating in this particular thing that I see clearly laid out as unbiblical in the Bible. Her response was that while it looks like the Bible seems to be saying this is wrong, she knew her pastor loved God. She knew her pastor was a great man of God, and she trusted that he had a deeper understanding of the Bible than she did. While it is good to look to our pastors for guidance, we can remember that they can be wrong. And we can remember that even Jonathan Edwards, perhaps the greatest theologian ever, was definitely wrong when it came to slavery. Two, is unity in the church the most important thing? We're going to see more next week that there was a great divide with the preachers during the Great Awakening, and slavery was a big part of that. John Wesley was opposed to slavery. The issue definitely divided the church, but it was definitely an issue that needed to be talked about. There were so many issues that the preachers of the Great Awakening didn't hide away from. They were willing to talk about them. They exposed sin. But exposing sin does divide the church. But exposing sin also brings revival. Third, the minority in the church during this time was correct. During the time of Edward's preaching, the anti-slave movement was very small. They were the minority, but they were also the ones that were correct. Lastly, today, Edwards can be a reminder to us about what our view of God should be. We're not worried about the wrath of God because we have the wrong view of God. The same God that Peter preached on Pentecost and Jonathan Edwards preached is the God we serve today. Just this week, I read an article that for the first time in American history, less than 50% of people attend church. In Canada, it's been way less than 50% for a long time. In Ontario, where I live, 19 out of 20 children have never been to church and can't answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? I'm going to read that stat to you one more time. Really let it sink in. In Ontario, Canada, 19 out of 20 children have never set foot in a church, and they cannot answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? 19 out of 20. We need a revival. We need a reminder of the fear of God. We need a right view of who God is. 